Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hey, Rishi, it's so great to have you on the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. So I think a good place to start, since we've never had you on this podcast before, maybe talk the audience through a bit about your background so they understand the context for the discussion we're going to have. Absolutely. Um, so today, um, I am a partner at Bain & Company, which is a management consulting firm, and I focus on uh, B2B marketing. And so I work with our clients um, on marketing transformations and driving top-line growth and working with sales teams, et cetera. Before joining Bain, um, I was chief marketing officer of several public technology companies, including MongoDB, Vonage, Dun & Bradstreet. And before that, I was global head of digital marketing for Dell's uh, B2B enterprise business. Um, and then before that, I was previously at Bain. So I was at Bain, I left for a long time, and then I came back. Fantastic. So I'm going to get straight into the discussion because it's an interesting discussion. So every day, pretty much I get an email from someone telling me they've got this great way to sell to consumers. They want to sign me up for some course or something like that. But I realized something recently when I was reading your work is that there's almost no literature available on how to do B2B sales to large companies and the thought process that goes into that. So maybe as a starting point, let's talk about what do you think is the most important thing our listeners need to know about as a starting point for this discussion when thinking about B2B sales? The number one thing that we have found is what we call the day one list. And let me very quickly, it's a very simple concept. What we found um, and what I experienced both as a CMO as well as um, working at Bain is that when big companies or B2B buyers buy and they begin their buying process, they already have a list of vendors that they want to consider. And 90% of the time, they already have that list. And it's interesting no matter what industry they're in, no matter how complex their procurement process is, um, and no matter you know what yes. how big their purchases, you know they end up, you know depending on the industry, roughly ninety percent of the time picking somebody from that original day one list. Now they will add people to that list, um, maybe one or two additional vendors, but consistently they end up buying off that initial list. And so getting on that day one list, as I call it, is very important um, from a B2B sales and marketing perspective. So let's break this down for the audience so they can follow this interesting idea. So it makes sense to me that what you're saying is that B2B buyers, they have a what you call a day one list with preferred companies they would like to give the work to or the order to. And even if they go to an RFP, even if other companies join that list, most of the time it's going to go to a preferred supplier that's on the day one list. So here's the question. How do you get onto that day one list? Great question. 
And so three things we found. Number one is they worked with you before. Okay. Surprise, surprise, right? So, so it's, the, it's you know, the chicken and the egg story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's, you know, nowadays, especially in B2B companies, executives move quite a bit from company to company. Yes. And so if they worked with you previously and had a very good experience, they want to, they'll consider you again. Um, and so, and it almost seems cliche, but really delivering a great experience for your customers, um, existing customers is critical. Yes. Secondly, and again, this is not going to be a huge surprise, is somebody they trust recommended you to them. Thirdly, they just had heard of you before. Um, typically, you know, it's, you know, before they were even ready to buy, they um, engaged, heard of your brand. They, did, they looked at your website and were familiar with what you did and who you are. And so when they were ready to buy, they um, already had you in mind. So a great example of that is salesforce.com, right? Yes. You can't think of CRM without thinking salesforce.com, even if you're not ready to buy CRM, for example. Obviously, they're in other spaces as well. But any B2B buyer who's thinking about a new CRM system, they're going to put salesforce.com down because they've just heard about them previously. And, and we can deep dive into all of these. But at the simplest level, it's those three things. And does one of them take precedence here? Um, you know, I think we heard all three pretty consistently. Pretty um, consistent. Now, obviously, right, like there's nothing stronger than having somebody who's used you before and had a successful experience and wants to use you again. Yes. But obviously, there's, there's not enough of that, you know, to drive growth. And so you have to look at all these things. So what's interesting about this, the first one makes sense to me, previous experience with that brand. The second yep. one is someone else had previous experience and referred a brand. Yep. Now, the third one is an interesting one here because you heard of you before. We don't often think about B2B suppliers as building brands so buyers can hear about them. So when you say you heard about you before, maybe unpack that for the listeners in terms of how that would work. Yeah, so there's two ways to do that. One way is um, in B2B, the sellers... Um, have been talking to you, engaging with you, talking even before you're ready to buy. So okay. just get super tactical, right? Like you're a big company and um, you're important to the seller. Even if you're not ready to buy, you're still building those relationships, providing great thought leadership and great content, um, helping them in their roles, et cetera, before they're even ready to buy. And so that when they're ready to buy, they already have a relationship with you. Secondly, it's what you just described, branding or um, you know digital engagement. But I think it's a little bit different in B2B where there is the, that traditional branding, of course, like messaging and creative and all that. But there's also more importantly, how are you educating the potential buyer that you're targeting uh, before they're ready to buy? So wherever they hang out digitally, the blogs they read, the podcasts they listen to, um, the review sites they go on, um, what they search for, you know, optimizing, you know, being digitally discoverable, as we call it, in yeah. all those different areas for the topics that matter and providing great content to help them when they're looking for that information, especially on your website, is often um, the most way, engaging way to kind of 
get people to know who you are before um, they're ready to buy. And and, and the, the beauty of B2B is that with B2C, you're targeting a large swath of consumers, right? Like you're selling detergent, it's a massive swath of you know, amorphous consumers you're targeting. When you're in B2B, especially nowadays, you can get very specific at a company by company level on whom you're targeting. And you can target them very specifically, both through the sellers or through the um, you know, digital or branding, et cetera, instead of doing a broad-based branding play, which makes it more efficient. And what I'm hearing here coming out quite strongly is not just about branding and marketing, it's about educating. Yes. That's the part that came out very clearly. So the one that struck me is the one about the sellers engaging the buyers before you want to sell to them. So you start building this relationship. Because often I find companies, they focus on a buyer when they want to sell and they kind of go cold in the relationship between sales. Yes. And, and, you know, just to make it super practical and super actionable, you know, what, you know, I did as a CMO and what we often do um, when we work with clients is let's start with who do you want to target, right? And let's build that list of target accounts that you want to go after now and in the future. And nowadays in B2B, you know, with third-party data and all that, you have, you know, every single business out there globally available to you, definitely in the U.S. and Europe. And so, you know, getting very focused on whom you want to target and who should target them. And then, you know, for the big accounts, sellers can engage with them with marketing. For more mid-sized to small accounts, marketing can engage very specifically against those accounts. But like, you know, really focusing on who are the target accounts, what is the opportunity within those accounts, and um, and and then then going after them very specifically makes it much more focused and actionable. Um, and then really thinking about who engages with which accounts, depending on the opportunity within them. And so you can get very programmatic and very specific in how you go after them. Yes, I like that because often when I talk to clients, in fact, I was talking to a client the other day, and they were telling me that they are targeting Microsoft, but I was trying to get them to the level of, you're not targeting Microsoft, you're targeting a number of executives within Microsoft. So, you know, who are these people? What is the decision-making process? And as you say, you can be very, very specific today versus, let's say, 30 to 40 years ago, where these things were not easily available. But it seems as if when we talk about sales, the language is always about we are targeting a company versus the individual making the decision for the company. What's the trade-off here? Yeah, so um, you definitely are targeting individuals, <laughs> not the company. Yes. And, and so it's an interesting concept. Like, let's take a big company like Microsoft, right? With data now, you know, the data you can get today is not just this is Microsoft, but you can get every entity and location yes. that Microsoft is in, everything that they own, right? Like third-party companies, et cetera, that they own, and um, the relationship between all those entities, like which entity owns the other one and where they locate all it. So you can get all that, you know, with third-party data. And so you're right. You're not just targeting Microsoft. You're targeting specific entities and people within Microsoft. And, you know, what we found is that it's all, it's not just one person, especially if you're doing a yes. big sale. Um, you know, obviously there's a singular kind of person who has the authority to buy you but that person is influenced by a lot of people. And um, what's interesting is what we find is that increasingly, 
So that's always been there and need to be buying. Yes. However, what has changed is that end users are increasingly having a bigger and bigger say in these kind of enterprise level decisions, especially in technology. And so you still have that large buying committee that you need to focus on. And you have you know, the one or two people who make the ultimate decision and they have various roles throughout the buying process, but the end user also increasingly has influence um, as well. Yes. So one thing I've seen with clients is that there's this element of getting a proposal for lack of a better word in that ticks all the boxes and looks nice and pretty and has the right prices and so on. But there's an also the element of how does the seller build a personal relationship with the buyer? Now, you spoke about educating the buyers and so on. What are some of the best practices in doing that? Yeah, so you can be extremely programmatic and actionable in terms of how you do that. And so, you know, I call it sales plays, right? And 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 it's um you have to build sales plays um, to engage those accounts. So let me get very tactical on what I mean by that. Step one, what I mentioned before, build out that map at a company by company level mm-hmm. of who you want to go after. So look at who you want to go after, where do you have existing relationships, what is the opportunity, and who is most likely to buy, like at a peop- at a company yes. and people level. Then you architect sales plays against that. So what is a sales play? It's a programmatic, coordinated set of marketing and sales actions to achieve a specific goal. So I'll give you a super example. Like you may you may build a sales play to say, I want to cross-sell this second product to my existing base. So how do I programmatically do that between sales and marketing? Or we're launching a new product and I want to programmatically sell that to a targeted set of new clients. Yes. Um, so you define that and then you kind of orchestrate that. So what, what I mean by that is you define what content do I need to do that? Um, what is marketing going to do and what is sales going to do against those accounts? And you orchestrate those cadences and then you, um, and it's going to have the content for the seller. So they have content for marketing and so have content um, for the end user. And then you define how you're going to programmatically go after that account. And you learn. So you implement a sales play. And by the way, like this is a when you, you know, we've we designed sales plays in two to three weeks, right? Yes. Get them out the door, learn, and then adapt them very quickly in an agile way, and then and then um improve them over time. And uh and so like building these and architecting these programmatic sales plays um against these specific set of accounts to build these relationships. Um, and doing it in a very programmatic, scalable way is really important. And 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 the way um, and and and, and you know, I can talk about if you want me like in a fair bit of detail on how you execute that. Um, but but being programmatic is the critical piece to scale. I do want to get into some of the details, but before we do that, I want to just paraphrase what you're saying for the audience so they can follow what's happening. Is a good way to think of a sales play like a play in football that the quarterback runs? It's something that the whole team practices. They know in a certain situation, this is what they'll do. This is the likely outcome. They go out there, they practice it. They know what needs to happen and they know how to execute it. Is that a good way to think about it? That, that Yeah, that is a good way. Um, it's a specific play for a specific purpose. So like taking that analogy, it's like um, we need to, you know, um, get a first down and we're you know nine yards away from the first down. 
So here's the play that we're going to run. Here's what the quarterback's going to do. Here's what the other players are going to do. We've run this before and we're going to run it again. And then they do it. And then they say, oh, well, this didn't work. This person, you know, we could have done it a little bit differently. And so the next time they do it, so then they go back and they say in the locker room after the game and they say, okay, how can we improve it? What do we learn? Okay, here's what we learn. So when they are in the same situation again, they're, they they run it um, in a better way and they get better and better over time. And you can imagine over time that play gets better and better and um, becomes more and more programmatic over time. Yes. So here's the kicker question. In many companies, what I've seen is they don't really institutionalize this. So they have these really great salespeople who create these plays. It's a good term for it. But what I've noticed is when those people move, a lot of those companies lose that institutional knowledge. So they don't build on that play. And someone new has to come into the new processes and so on. So in your experience, how does a company institutionalize it so that if key people leave, that knowledge doesn't walk out to them? It's a great question. And it's actually, I will take that question a little bit further because it's not just if people leave. It's that I have seen so many companies that say, oh, we run sales plays. And then you ask the question, well, do they scale? And it's almost always no, right? Yes. So we've done a couple, but, you know, and, and it, it could be because people are leaving, but it could be just, they just can't, they're, they're such a complex organization. Um, actually, it's even in mid-sized organizations. They just can't coordinate everyone. So there's three things that you need to scale sales plays. Number one, in no particular order, is what I call the sales play factory. And that is the sales and marketing team um, and product marketing and, and maybe uh, marketing operations and sales operations who are building the play and improving on the, the existing plays based on feedback. So that's kind of the sales play factory. That's an agile team that you know meets daily right, in agile standups and kind of can put out a new play within two to three weeks. So they're the factory, they build the play. That's very common in companies. The second, so that's the first thing. The second thing is what I call the win room, what we call the win room. And the win room is essentially focused on number one, measuring whether these plays are actually working. How many people are, how many sellers are actually implementing the plays? Um, are they uh, um, are they working or not working? So how much pipeline is being generated? Yeah. And and it's also the place where you get feedback on how to improve the play, given it's in the field. And that feedback is organized and sent to the factory for improvement. The third area, which is the one that everyone forgets, which is um, sales and marketing, what I call sales and marketing execution, basic mm -hmm. change management. So that is as important as building as number one, which is building and number two, which is measurement, which is number three is how do you actually get people to change so they use plays? And that's a combination of doing the right education and training, getting the right you know, uh, set of people in the organization on board from the sales you know, executives and sales leaders to the day-to-day -day sales managers to the sellers themselves, getting them you know, and we, we call it sponsorship spine. So getting them aligned um, and, then, and then really driving the change management, education, you know, um, acceptance of the plays over time. Um, so, so all that change management, which is that third bucket, 
is as important. And so like, so, so you need all three of those elements. So I'll, I'll repeat them. Number one is a factory where you build a play. Yes. Number two is the win room where you measure the play and get feedback from the field. And number three is, you know, the change management you need, the training, the sponsorship, the coaching, all of that to actually make them scale. You know, we've implemented, we've implemented this in many, many companies and without fail, you need all three to be successful and scale. What's interesting is that when you have that in place, sales, you solve a number of issues that always come up. Number one is sales and marketing alignment. Yes. Um, number two is, as I mentioned, scaling plays. And number three is um, you build a lot more predictability in your sales and marketing machine because you know, hey, over time, I execute this play and consistently this play has this kind of close rate, this kind of time to close and all of that. So you have much more predictability in your sales and marketing engine. Yes, I like how methodical it is. And I like the feedback mechanisms. When you build out the sales play factory, you have to have people there that have credibility. So whatever they're developing, there's a greater chance of it being used. How do you pick the people that work in the sales play factory? Um, it's a great question. You know, you, you need to bring together the experts um, who know the space and know yes. the contact and messaging. So that's number one. Oftentimes that's the product marketing team. Um, and then secondly, and this is, it's a great question. And this is what people often forget, bring in the best sellers of that product. Yes. <laughs> and so, so if you bring in the best sell, the people who all the other sellers look up to, who always, you know, make a ton of money um, and are known to be great sellers and, you know, they, they know this product that's part of this play or they know this play really well because they themselves have been successful on their own executing it. Having them involved, having them provide feedback to what's being built yes. um, is, is, uh, is a powerful way to do that. And in fact, it's, it's hilarious. It's a great question because like, I have often with clients when building a play, I will often, you know, just say like, look, let me, let me look at the performance of all the sellers. And inevitably, you always see the same pattern. There's a small handful of sellers who outperform everyone else. Yes. And sometimes with particular plays, we'll just sit with those top sellers and just say, walk us through what you do. And unsurprisingly, they're building their own content. They're sending their own emails. They've built their own way of doing things. And, you know, and they're not using any of the things that, are market, that marketing has built for them. Um, and, you know, it's almost as simple as let's codify the cadences they already do and the content they already use, and let's just roll it out to the rest of the sellers in the form of the sales play. Oftentimes, that's a huge value add because what you're doing is you're bringing your medium performers up to, uh, much to, the, to the level of the top performers, and that often is enough to add tons of value. Yes, I would think that just saying here is the top performer and that's what they're doing motivates the others to at least try harder. So that by itself adds value. Let's talk through a play that one that you can share. Yep. And if we can talk through the play, how it was developed and then how you tracked it, I think it'll be interesting for the listeners to see something in motion, go through the process. Yes. So um, a common play that we see is one where um, you know, we sell 
Um, we meaning the the company we sell to a mid to low level um, person um, based on the features and functionality of our product. Yes. We need to get to the senior executive and sell a solution which has a much bigger price point and leverages everything we sell. Yes. But but our sellers can't do that. How do we do that? So that, that that's a very common play that we see. And and so what what we do so so to, to walk through how we did that, we um in the factory, we brought together the product marketers who knew the product inside and out and knew the solution inside and out. We brought the top sellers who have been successful at selling to these executives. Um, and, and we kind of brought them together to build the play. Now, the important part of the play, okay, was two components. One is content. So we had to up-level the content to be less about features and functionality and more about a solution. Mm-hmm. So the product marketers, and I'm, I'll get, I'm gonna get super tactical. The product marketers- Perfect. They, they they brought together all the individual products that made the solution um, together with the product managers. And they kind of hashed out with the experts in the company and the sellers, like what the solution would look like and what portfolio of products. And they did that in the factory um, with the top sellers who knew how to sell the solutions and the top specialists who knew how to sell the solutions. And so based on that, they defined the messaging, who are we targeting? You know, the C-level executives or the VPs. Yes. What is their pain point at that level? And how does our solution, not product, address that pain point? That was very painful by itself. Yes. But once we kind of were able to establish the solution and the pain point and the personas, then it was a matter of putting that into the right set of material and so based on that, we built training material for the sellers, objection handling, um, you know, pitch decks, uh, and, and kind of the typical kind of like uh, um, things like uh, material for the end, end customer based on what's worked in the past um, and things like that. So that's kind of like we built a set of material, but also we built the cadence to help the sellers leverage the existing relationships with the mid-level person to get to the senior level. So for example, what is the email that you send to that mid-level person to convince them to introduce you to the executive? What is the script that you use when you call him or her up to help introduce you? What is the what is marketing's role in nurturing the relationship with that C-level executive, whether it's hitting that C-level executive with you know, content on LinkedIn, you know, hitting them with, um, uh, you know, you know um, content in digital, yeah. shooting emails, all that kind of stuff simultaneously while the seller is trying to navigate to that person as well. So surrounding that seller, that, that C-level executive. Um, and, and, and so, so, you know, we kind of both built the content for the seller as well as the cadences to get to that C-level executive leveraging the existing relationship. Um, and so we built all that out programmatically with the sales specialists, with the frontline sellers, with the BDRs, and with the marketers. And we defined it very programmatically in the, in the, the factory. Then secondly, um, so that, that, that's kind of what we did in the factory. Then in the win room, we kind of said, okay, we really need to measure, A, whether sellers are actually 
implementing the play. And if they're not, let's find out why and adjust the play. And number two, um, uh, really trying to understand um, how we, you know, how do we measure success? Because the challenge that you run into with that type of play is it's a long sales cycle because you're trying to sell a solution. Yes, exactly. So, so, so th then, you know, and, and we often get the question, oh my gosh, like, how do we know this is even working? Well, here's how you know. You determine what the high value interaction is with that client. So an example, if you, the high value interaction is we got a meeting with that C-level executive um, who has the authority to buy our stuff um, and the budget. And so that was the early indicator that the sales play was working is if we were increasing the rate at which we were getting those meetings with the C-level executive. So that was an early indicator of success. So the quick win. The quick win. Yeah, yeah, what is the early indicator? So even though it may take a long time to close the deal, if you're getting increasing meetings with that C-level executive, which is a high value interaction, and also, you know, if you get that meeting, you know that you have a higher probability of closing, you can measure those things early on. So that's what we measured in the win room. And, and then um, obviously that's also in the win room, we got feedback early on and improved the play. And then the third piece, the change management, you know, we built training both for the sellers. So the sellers understood the play, how to use it, where to get it, et cetera. We trained their managers on um, how to coach the sellers because, you know, when they first implement, they're going to run into a whole host of issues. And so yes. how do you coach those sellers? So we trained them. And then we made sure that the executive sales executives were 100% on board and, and encouraging their teams to implement the plays because you need that sponsorship at the executive level telling the sellers that this is important. Um, and so we did a lot of that as well. And so that's just a super tactical example at a, you know, of how you, know, you play out one play. And then over time, what happened with that is initially, of course, it wasn't the best, right? Like, yes. It was, yeah, but over time, as we got feedback, we improved the content, we improved the cadences, we learned over time, and um, it became pretty programmatic and predictable. And what was interesting is once it became predictable, they could take that play and put it in their account plans. So when they enter the new year, for example, and they're building their account plans to hit their number, they can say, okay, I'm going to run this play, and I know this play will deliver this return at this probability and this close rate because it would, you know, became scalable over time. Oh, I love this example because often what I've seen with companies that don't handle B2B sales well is they put a lot of emphasis on training in their own offices without realizing you got to have a play and then have a very strong loopback mechanism to keep on adapting and improving things. Here's the big question I have. So all of this obviously works. It makes a lot of sense. In your experience, when you go in and face a sales team and you basically have to tell them in a nice way that what they're doing is not working and you've got to improve it, how do you get them to buy into this? Because essentially you're telling people they're not doing their jobs as well as they could. How do you get people to buy into something like that? You have to get the senior sales executive buy-in first. So senior because, sales executive yeah, first, the champion. Yeah, yeah. The champion, because if they're not on board, nobody on the sales team will do it. As, and the same thing with marketing, right? Like yeah. you have to get the, the the CMO and the marketing executive team on board. Otherwise, nobody in marketing works because they have day jobs, right? They, their time is already filled up with stuff. So, so that's the first thing. 
Second thing is um, they have to feel some level of pain. So let me get like super, let me give you an example. Like, like one company we went into, they uh, were historically um, kind of, you know, a monopoly kind of thing. You know, they were historically yeah. like, you know, with one of a few players because of technology, it became a very competitive market and they didn't know how to aggressively grow the top line and then, and they had to sell to more executives. So they knew that that was a challenge and they were under the gun to accelerate top line growth in a way they've never done it before. So because they, they had this challenge and they hadn't done it historically at the executive level, they felt the pain and the need to do things differently. And so you almost need that at the executive level of, you know, we need to drive this top line. We haven't historically done it or we haven't historically been able to do it. And so we need to change. And, 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 and that need for change at the top level is often what gets, you know, they, what gets the overall sales team to change. Because once you get the sales executives to believe that they need to change, then they, they can, they'll get their teams to change as well. That's all part of the change management. So it helps if they're facing some kind of a cliff. Switching gears a bit, you want to go back to the win room. So we spoke about measuring progress. Some of the quick wins can be getting the meetings with the level of people we want to get. How do you know a play is now matured and is ready to be rolled out? What are the signs that the play is working? Um, so a play is never finished. Yes. <laughs> so, yes. so you Tom Brady would know that very well. <laughs> um, so you build a play in two to three weeks. You kind of say, look, we're going to build a play. Maybe initially it might take four weeks, but like over time, just get it out the door in two to yeah. three weeks, make it good enough. And then um, you refine it over time. So to answer your second question, how do you know it's working? Um, a, you have a good number of sellers who you want to implement the play. They're actually implementing the play. B, you're seeing that high value activity happening. And then three, as time passes, you're generating pipeline through the play. Um, that that that's kind of the the high level indicators. The next one that you see, which is not quantitative, but like if you see a lot of sellers coming back and giving feedback, that's actually a good sign. Yeah. Because they believe in it, they're engaged, and they want to improve the plays, and they feel ownership of it as well. So. Those 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 times when you get a lot of sellers giving a lot of feedback saying fix this, improve this, do this, all that, that's actually a good sign that you have good engagement. Yes, what I like about your way of thinking about sales is that sales for better or worse, and I don't know how it got this reputation, is always seen as this intangible relationship-driven activity where there's no real processes in place. So yeah, you've put in place processes that clearly work. So how do you then balance this against the element of sellers needing to have their own personal way of doing things? Because when you're rolling out this process, you're obviously not trying to standardize things, but to some degree, it's going to happen. How do you manage that tension whereby sellers need to be themselves and do what they do best, but at the same time, use what's working? So you do allow some level of customization yes. by the seller because, you know, end of the day, like you build a play, but in B2B selling, every client is slightly different. Um, 
every seller has a different level of relationship with that client. Um, and so you have to allow that seller to customize to some degree, um, whether it's, you know, you define a cadence and the seller may not follow the cadence exactly because they already know this, know the buyer or they have a different relationship and all of that. So um, not, you know, being so uh, programmatic saying you must follow this process, but allowing them to customize the play and making that clear when you do the training is, is what allows you to have that kind of, you know, 20%, 30%, whatever customization of the play. Even then, you know, sellers, the feedback we get is sellers really love having that, all that content in one place, all those cadences in one place, knowing what the best sellers do successfully. Like that's a incredible platform on which they can sell. Yes, I would imagine so. So, so let's assume that the play is working, the wind room looks good. How do you get more people to adopt this? Is it by sharing the successes? Sharing successes. So, for example, you know, I'll give you an example. Like, if you're a large global company, um, or even a medium-sized global company, you may build sales play system or whatever you want to call it um, in one region. You know, like let's say you let's say U.S. for example, or a part of the U.S. If you're really big, like the Western U.S. or whatever, yes. you build it there and you demonstrate success, and then you kind of then the other regions want the same success, and that has happened in spades. Like we worked with one client where we did exactly that, where we built it in the U.S. Uh, because you know that that that, that was one of the biggest markets. And they had really good talent there as well. And so we built it there. And then once we got it going and those high value actions, as I mentioned, like they got early wins and, and meetings that they could never get before and were beating their previous metrics. Then the European region said, hey, we want the same thing <laughs> and we want yes. to implement it. Now, there's, there's obviously nuances in Europe, but like they wanted it as well. And so we we helped them implement it in Europe as well. And so- and then, by the way, like then as a company, they became very good at running it themselves without us, our help as consultants, because, you know, we helped them build the capability as well. And so they could continue managing that machine and growing it over time themselves. That makes sense. And then coming back to the third step, we spoke about change management. What are some of the best practices in getting people to adopt this and see it as their own. You talked about allowing a bit of customization. I see that being part of the step, but what are the best practices in change management? Yeah, a um, few things. Great training of both the frontline sellers, the marketers, and the sales managers who can coach um, how to coach and how to execute the plays and then training, then uh, sales play specific training. Uh, second thing is um, making sure that you know, we call it the sponsorship spine, like all the way from the executives downward, there's buy off and excitement about making this successful. That's, that's really important on the change management side. Third is um, early wins. So getting a few plays out the door and showing how they work, what they are, um, showing success early on. So, you know, I often say that when you're implementing this sales play system, don't pick the most complex, hardest sales play that you can think of as your first yes. play. Pick something that you know is, uh, you know, 
medium difficulty, but you know you can get it done. You have the smarts internally already and, and just get it out the door quickly and show success. Because once people see one or two plays out the door, then light bulbs go off in their heads and like, oh, now we understand what this is. And then it becomes kind of, you get the momentum going. And so getting those wins early on is really important. And then, then the, the fourth thing is um, always in those early days of implementation, getting feedback from the frontline sellers, not just on the play itself, but on like, what are the obstacles that they're feeling to implementing it? Some may be like real obstacles and some may be just like emotional, like this is so different. I have so many other things on my plate, et cetera. But getting that feedback early on so that you can manage it is actually really important as well. So I imagine when Bain is implementing this, you would have some kind of PMO set up. But once you guys leave, what is the organizational structure for running this? Who's driving this in the client set and how are they managing it? Yes. Um, so one thing we focus a lot on when we implement it is allowing the, you know, helping the client right from day one yes. build capability that themselves and run it themselves. And so it depends on the client, but um, you know, oftentimes in the sales play, like the sales play system, you know, will often be run either out of sales operations or marketing operations or both. That's yes. the most common thing that, that we'll see. Um, obviously, it's sponsored by both the sales and marketing organizations, but like the day-to-day -day running of it is often there. Um, secondly, in the factory, it'll be product marketers. This is the most common case. Product marketers who, who are relevant for that play, um, sellers who are relevant for that play, and then um, some kind of you know play owner who's running the play end-to-end. -end. Oftentimes, it's the senior most expert in that area. And then in the win room, win rooms, you just over time make it the natural part of the normal sales cadence. So sellers, you know, oftentimes are already doing pipeline reviews at a regular cadence, already doing QBRs. If you can integrate this win room into that normal process, um, that's the most common thing we see. However, some clients prefer to have a separate meeting for the win room, and that's fine as well. Um, and then the change management is really, you know, continuing the training continuing the feedback mechanisms and all of that. So, so, you know, it, it, it's, um, it does require a little bit of investment, you know, in the, and, you know, to keep it going in the long run. But um, I think what oftentimes people see is, you know, it requires a bit of investment, but also they find that over time they can stop doing certain things that are not driving ROI and focus on this. Yes. It's very logical. And all of the lessons, the sales plays, the sort of library, that's kept in the sales play factory? It is, yes. So, so yeah, so, so the sales play factory will kind of maintain that library of sales plays. Um, and oftentimes it's not a ton, right? Like, yes, of like, course. You know, because you if you have a lot of them, it becomes untenable. So, like, you may actually only see eight to ten plays that cover a significant portion of the pipeline. Yes, 80-20 rule, um, right? Exactly, exactly. And then you may do additional ones that are very specific, right, for a specific vertical or a subsegment of customers or, you know, a specific reason or something like that. Like, you know, you may see things like, oh, we need to execute a price increase. And the sales play system is actually a great mechanism once it's in motion to execute those kind of things as well um, yeah. or product update or whatever. And so, um, but for the bulk of the pipeline, it's, it's oftentimes generated by eight to 10 plays. 
sometimes less if you're a smaller company. Yes, what I like about this process is that when I speak to many executives, they're always looking to hire great salespeople. And of course, you want great salespeople. But what this does is it shows that there's a large part of the sales process, the success of which can be controlled and created by the company. So that if you have these sales plays in, you allow the weaker salesman to do better, as opposed to just relying on hiring these sales stars. So it's a nice process to make sure that the ones who are not doing well have a process to follow to get better. Have you seen that working with clients? Yes, absolutely. I mean, that's, you, you essentially, what you're trying to do is A, remove the variability in the process and increase yes. the variability. B, like you said, get people closer to the top sellers, get more people closer to the top sellers. Um, those two things are kind of critical and you want to be very programmatic. So you're back to the predictability because, you know, ultimately the, the two challenges that CEOs and sales leaders face is how do I increase the productivity of my sellers? Yes. Um, so I don't, don't have to keep hiring a ton of them. Um, and then how do I increase the predictability of my forecast so that I can, I feel confident that I'm going to hit my number, you know, this quarter, this year, et cetera. And so sales plays provide a great mechanism to do that. And then the third one, which is a huge problem in many companies is sales and marketing are not aligned. And this is a great mechanism to drive that alignment. Yes. And what I like about our discussion is that you never use the concepts of increasing salaries and incentives to motivate people. Of course, you are doing that. But yeah. what you're showing is there are much deeper tools to improve the performance of your sales team before you even get to incentives and salaries. Yes, yes. I mean, I mean, you know, you have like the sellers have to be incented to sell whatever the play is trying to. But it's not enough, right? But, right, right, right. But ultimately, like what sellers want is to be successful <laughs> and yes, make make a lot of exactly. money, and 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 they do that by being more like the top seller. Yeah, I, I can imagine, you know, if you go into a room of all these sellers, a good way to start this discussion is say, guys, I think you are being underpaid. So let's put together some processes where you sell more and you get rewarded better. Because that's ultimately what you're doing. You're helping them sell better. Yes, absolutely. And, and you're giving them the support they need to do that. A simple way to think of this is we can bring this down to the level of a single person who has to create all of the capabilities and emails and copy by themselves. And that detracts from their time to sell. And by having them have the right kind of support, they can focus on the one thing that only they should be doing, which is selling. That's exactly right. And what we find often in B2B companies is that marketing has built a whole bunch of material and done a whole bunch of analytics. And the sales operations team had done a whole, built a whole bunch of enablement and training, but nobody's using any of that stuff. And the top yes. sellers basically have built, figured out the formula themselves yes. and built everything yes. themselves and just doing it on their own. And that's not scaling to the rest of the organization. And so this forces marketing and sales to build the things that will actually result in a sale. Um, and as we talked about earlier, leverages what the best sellers do. Yes. I remember many years ago when I worked in sales, we were having trouble getting 
the sellers to focus on the 20% of the products that brought in the bulk of the profits. And the simplest thing is I watched this older gentleman, 68 years old, and looked at what he did in his top performing team. And what he would do is he would put the top 20 products on the first page and he'd put the rest on the second page. And his goal was that you first work on these 20, when you're done with it, then you get to the others. It was such a simple thing, but that's what led to improved results for his team. It's like what you're saying, it's almost you have to be like an anthropologist. You got to watch the top sellers, yep. bring in what they're doing and adjust it and make it available to everyone else. Of course, with room for adaptation and so on. But what's interesting about what you say is that one very common situation that we see is the CEO is saying, we have this strategy that I'm telling the street about, right? Like we're going to get into this, these, and this is actually, I'm doing this with a client Yes. Um, right now where they're an amazing company. They're doing really, really well, but the CEO is, you know, trying to drive, you know, three or four big game changing things. And um, the challenge that he has is we have to do this, but I don't know practically how I translate these four things to the front line to sell. Yes. And that's a very common situation that we hear um, from companies is, um, you know, we need to move the ship into this new solution areas or these, these new digital areas or whatever, because our competitors are, but I don't know how to, and I know how to sell that to the investors and sell that to the public and, and all that. But how do I translate that to my frontline sellers? And this is a great mechanism to do that because it forces, yeah. you know, the sales play factory becomes, it gets, you know, that, that mechanism forces them to take that high level vision and translate into something practical that the sellers can sell. What I like about it is also allows me, if I was heading up sales, just to say, I can look at the sales play independently to see if we have the right place. Then I can look at the sellers independently to see what are the issues they are having with implementing the place. Because what we often do is when we're looking at our sales team, it's hard for us to distinguish between, is there a problem with the play, the motivation of the seller, the capability of the seller? And by separating them, we can focus on where the problem really lies. And, and I think that's a great way to run a sales process. Absolutely. And going back to change management, that is why it's so critical to train the sales managers on coaching their frontline sellers, because they need to be very strong at figuring that out, what you just said out, which is, you know, my, my frontline seller, are they having a challenge because you know, the play's not working for yes. them. Are they having a challenge because um, they themselves are not capable of actually in a play? Or is it that, you know, they they need help, you know, um, and they just need to be coached. Um, and how do I do that coaching? And so like, it, it's, it's um that that's why it's as part of this change management, it's so important to train the, 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 front, the people who manage the frontline sellers on how to coach and figure that stuff out and give that feedback back to the, the sales play team. This is the interesting thing, right? If you look at successful sports teams, they have obviously star players on the field. But if you have the wrong coach who cannot put the pieces together, cannot bring the best out of their players, things fall apart. It's a similar concept here. 
without the right level of coaching and the right skills in coaching, your best salespeople are never going to fulfill their potential. Absolutely. That's exactly, that's a great analogy. Rishi, I enjoyed our conversation immensely. I did as well. Thank you for the opportunity to come on. I'm actually hoping that you'll write a book about this one day <laughs> because, you know, Bain has always had strong capabilities in CRM and so on, because I know quite a few of the partners there. But the way you think about sales is very different from the way I've seen other people think about it. And to me, if sales was presented more in this way, I think it would attract more top performers into sales. Because often sales has this veneer of, we're going to throw you in and you figure it out. And I think it scares away some people from sales because they feel they're going to sink or swim all by themselves. It's a great point. Um, this is all about helping the sellers be their best, giving yes. them the right content, giving them the right process and listening to what they need and reacting to it. Yes, I like that. I love the way that everything, it's a process, it's a system but it takes into consideration individuality. It's a good way to make people successful. Rishi, I want to thank you for your time. Is there anything you want to tell our listeners before we wrap up? No, I, I want to thank them for listening. So thank you for listening. And um, you can find me on Twitter um, at Rishi P. Dave, D-A-V-E. You can find me on LinkedIn. Um, and you can also find me on the Bain & Company website. So, um, you know, and, and we actually lay out a lot of how the sales play system works um, on our website. So take a look at that if you have questions and, you know, thank you so much. No, thank you. I enjoyed that immensely. I think this will be one of our most popular podcasts because it's obvious you're an expert in the area, but you have a very nice way of explaining the concept so that it makes sense. You can almost visualize what needs to happen as you're speaking. So I want to thank you for taking the time to explain it. And I enjoyed speaking to you and I hope we'll bring you back onto the show in the future. Thank you so much. Take care, Rishi. Have a good day. Thank you. You too. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.